Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Everything is Black and White podcast, live on Chronicle NUFC on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube, and of course on our podcast channel. I'm Matt Ketchell, football fan engagement editor here at Chronicle Live. And I'm joined by our chief Newcastle United writer, Lee Ryder, for a special edition of the EIBW podcast, where we're going to talk about the entertainers era. This is a takeover-free zone for the next half an hour or so. Uh, no Mike Ashley, Steve Bruce, Joe Willock, this is Keegan, John Hall, Andy Cole, Rob Lee, all, all the rest. So settle in and, and enjoy. Uh, earlier in the summer, I put out a special entertainers survey on Chronicle Live that thousands of fans took part in. And we've got the results here. So we're going to spend a bit of time discussing those and uh, reminiscing, basically. Think of this as an antidote to what has been, let's be honest, a difficult summer for everyone associated with the club. Um, Lee, wanted to start by asking you, what period of time do you associate the entertainers era as? Because it sparked a bit of debate on Twitter. People seem to think that it ended when the title uh, challenge ended. Personally, I think it started with Keegan's arrival and ended with his departure. Where do you stand on the, the time frame of the entertainers era? For me, um, I think, I mean, obviously the Keegan era officially began in, in 92 and I remember going out for lunch at school and then seeing the the Chronicles uh, placard outside the newsagent saying, our dealer's gone, Keegan in. And that for me was the start of the Keegan era and that, you know, everyone was shocked at school in the second half of the day. So that's how far we're going back. Uh, but... Probably the entertainers for me were probably born the Sky Sports kind of era. I think there was a particular game away to Oldham Athletic, uh, 1-3-1. Andy Cole was on the score sheet, Peter Beardsley as well. And that game was on the Monday Night Football. And then, from then, I think Richard Keyes and Andy Gray began to, to sort of use the term the entertainers. Um, since, obviously doing a lot of reporting on Newcastle, found out was a guy called Vic Wakelin who uh, branded them the entertainers. And then that obviously went into into the show, the Monday Night Football show. And then obviously we all know what happened after that. Uh, they finished third in the first season of the Premier League and it just sort of caught fire from there really. So yeah, that's, I would say the 93-94 season was officially probably my starting point. Okay. And obviously the, the current era probably won't go down as a classic when we look back in 30 years' time as we are now. But the entertainers' era of the 90s definitely was and is regarded as, as a classic period. The first question, Lee, that the survey asked was, where do fans rank the entertainers' era and all the eras that they've watched Newcastle United? Yourself as a, a fan and a journalist covering the club for 15 or so years, where does it rank for you? Is Has anything come close to it in your time associated with the club? Being honest, uh, not really. I have to be brutally honest about it. When I first started the job, it was uh, the same week where they signed Michael Owen and got Nobby Solano back. So there was there was some feedback, uh, sort of feel good factor around the city because bringing in Michael Owen at that time, I know it didn't turn out 
the way we wanted it to. But um, certainly at the time, bringing in a record signing from Real Madrid is, is a sign of ambition. There's no doubt about it. Um, but it didn't really uh, work, sadly. Obviously, you had the season where they finished fifth, got into the Europa League. Um, that was that was exciting, but it didn't really touch touch the the entertainers era uh, because of the restrictions and you know you weren't allowed to get carried away with anything. That was the 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 way it felt under Alan Pardew. It was always managing expectations rather than letting expectations you know manage the fans, if you like. So yeah, uh, I don't think we've come close, and at the minute we're probably probably the furthest we've ever been away from it. That, that, that's mm. that's how I feel at the moment. Yeah, and in terms of the results of the survey, as you expect people taking part in an entertainer survey, 91% agree with you. They say it was the very best that they ever saw. 7% put it in the second best era they've ever seen. 2% who took part in the survey were too young to witness it, so they're, they're out. And, and 17 people said it, and it wasn't in their top two, so I'd love to know which eras they were watching because uh, <laughs> it must have been good. The, the second question that the survey asked, we asked readers to rearrange um, classic entertainers players in order of their favourites. So we've effectively got a top 14 players list here from the entertainers era. I'll go through it in reverse order. There's 14 names. 14th was Tino Aspria. 13th, interestingly, was Alan Shearer. Now, discussing at the start of the, the, the live that the entertainers era could have effectively ended when the title challenge ended. Shearer obviously came after that, so maybe that's why he ranked quite low on that. Steve Howie was 12th, Philippe Albert 11th, Darren Peacock 10th. Uh, we have Steve Watson 9th, Lee Clark 8th. My favourite entertainer personally, Pavel Cernic, was 7th on the list. Les Ferdinand 6th. And into the top 5 then it goes Ginola 5, Keith Gillespie 4, quite high, Rob Lee, and then number 2 was Beardsley, and number 1 was Andy Cole. So Reaction to that? Yeah, some of them I, I might have had uh, a little bit higher up. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, I mean, really, for me, the entertainers was Beardsley and Cole to begin with. And Peter Beardsley, you know, was a fantastic player, world-class bracket, could have played abroad, could have, could have easily played at a Barcelona or Marseille in their pomp, um, you know, easily played in Serie A and we had him, we had him in his absolute vintage years and it was just, it was worth the season ticket price alone to see Peter Beardsley during that, that era and he made it for Andy Cole in, in a lot of ways. I mean, Andy Cole was a fantastic player but it was just such a wonderful combination in that sort of 93, 94 period. Um, Obviously, Cole was sold. I mean, that that that's our version of Messi going really in in some from that era, uh, because you've seen the reaction of Barcelona. People turn up at the gates, um, absolutely devastated. He's gone, and that that people might you know not believe it, but at that during that time, that was what it was like outside St James Park when the news filtered through. Andy Cole had gone, so so for me, yeah, them them two would be in, in the top two. Um, Philippe Albert, did I, did I miss Philippe Albert there? 11th. Or 11th. I mean, I'd have him higher up, I would say, because, I mean, it was, it was just fantastic to see him break from deep and 
chip in with a goal and score like a centre forward. Fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I think we probably could all write them down on a list, and there might be one or two differences. But I think Beardsley and Cole at the top is is right. I mean, Shearer was part of the entertainers because up until Keegan left in you know early '97, uh, he was having a whale of a time with Les Ferdinand uh, up front. And really, for me, that '96 '97 team was better than the team that you know were 12 points clear on paper, and they should have won it as well. But we we all know how how it ended. <laughs> yeah, we do, we do, and actually leads us. Uh into the next question on the survey. We asked fans, in their opinion, where was the crucial slip-up during the 95-96 title run-in? There is four main games that we've that we've pinpointed. Um, the first was, um, in, in the run-in, was the Man United game at home, 4th of March, that uh, Man United won 1-0. I believe Newcastle at the time were three points clear, but, but Man United had a game in hand, so a win for Newcastle would have created a big gap, six points, but Man United would have had the games in hand, but there would have been the pressure on them to win that, so it was so crucial. I also read, um, didn't realise at the time, it was David Batty's debut that night, so... That's right. If you're yeah. going to throw anyone into a game like that for their debut, <laughs> Batty is, is probably the one, so that was an interesting game. Um, the next game where the wheels began to fall off was the four, first 4-3 four at Anfield. Collymore closing in. Um, then very shortly after that, Newcastle went to Ewood Park, and lost 2-1, Grim Fenton famously scoring, Newcastle fan. And then the fourth game where it may have ended the title run effectively was Nottingham Forest away where they drew 1-1 on the 2nd of May. In terms of results, 54% felt that the title was lost against Man United in March. Um, 21% felt the Liverpool 4-3 was where it ended. 18% felt it ended at Blackburn and, and, and 6% felt it ended at Nottingham Forest. Where do you where do you think it was it was all over for Newcastle when they lost? So on reflections, speaking now uh, in twenty twenty one, when I look I've looked back at it many, many times and for me I, I probably disagree with my younger self because looking at it now, all these years on, it's definitely the Man United game at home because that was the one where the momentum swung totally in Man United's favour. Even a draw that night for Newcastle would have probably just been enough to keep ticking along. Uh, but they absolutely battered them in the first half, as, as we all know. Um, you, you look back at that game, you can't believe we didn't win it. Mm-hmm. Man United were very fluky in that game. Miss hit volley from Cantor. But they got the job done. And as we've learned down the years, sometimes you know you, you have to have these ugly, scrappy wins. If you're going to win the title, and Newcastle just that, that was the one thing that seemed to be lacking. They, they seemed to believe it had to be a perfect performance and an entertaining performance when Man United were just carving results out. So that's probably where I think it went wrong looking at it now in the modern day. But, but looking back, I was probably a lot more naive. And I would probably say that sort of Nottingham Forest game, the 1-1 where Ian Wan scored because... You were hoping that they could win that and then take it. I mean, it did go the last day, really. But mm. let's be honest: if that was a situation now, you would probably concede they weren't going to win the title. You were never going to be able to rely on Middlesbrough to beat that Man United team. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, it's um, it's one of them where you just look back 
now and see the Man United game in the March. Um, and yeah, you can look at Liverpool, you can look at Blackburn, but for me, that was definitely where it, it started to go wrong. And then the rot seemed to set in a little bit and the confidence was dented. Yeah. And uh, in, that was in terms of a specific time that the, the title race seemed to derail. We all, we also asked readers what the main reason was that Newcastle just couldn't get over the line. Um, and there was a, a few interesting theories. Not enough experience in the team. David Batty arriving. Uh, fans felt that may have you know, disrupted the team. Tino arriving <clears throat> in the February. The philosophy being too attacking was an option for, for readers to select. Not invest, not investing enough in defence. Eric Cantona, I remember at the time, he always seemed to pop up and, and, and snatch games for them 1-0. Um, and Alex Ferguson's mind games, that those were the reasons. 26%, the majority felt that not there wasn't enough experience in this team. That was the that was what uh, the fans taking part in the survey felt. Uh, 21% felt that Alex Ferguson's mind games is what what caused Newcastle to fail to win the league that year. 19% felt Cantona was the, the, the difference between the two teams. And then 14% uh, thought not investing in the defence was the issue. 10% felt the attacking philosophy wasn't right. 6% felt Tino was the problem. And just 4% felt that uh, David Batty was the reason why they couldn't get it over the line. But yeah, not the, main, the, the top three, not enough experience. Fergie's mind games and Eric Cantona. Yeah. Yeah, I probably agree with with that. Um, the tactics, the philosophy. I think Keegan probably needed another sort of a, a game time coach a long time alongside him. Really, if, if he um, so obviously uh, somewhat obviously Graham Jones would be an equivalent these days. I I, I guess because just someone who's gonna come in, take the sting out of it a little bit, and then maybe just for 20 minutes, just sit deep and uh, try and soak things up. Now, that would have been ideal away at Liverpool when they were 3-2 up um, in that game. The mind games, yeah, I, I get that. I think Keegan made a rod for his own back, though, in some ways. You know, when he when we first come in the Premier League, he was saying, we're after your title and all that. I think he ruffled the feathers. And I think Fergie was a bit more experienced and he waited for the right moment to get under his skin. And um, yeah, but to be fair, when when he actually said that, personally as a fan, I thought that was fantastic. Yeah. I was right behind him and that fired me up for the last couple of games. So, and I think a lot of my friends at the time felt the same, you know what I mean? So that for me was, was uh, a, a positive moment. You know, I know people look back and... and look at it differently but at the time I felt it was brilliant but um, yeah and, and defensively I've actually spoke to Keegan a couple of times at various events and he said okay then let's say I did switch it defensively what what would happen if we'd have lost it and I'd have gone that way and changed you know in the last third of the season so I guess he's got his reasons for doing it and uh, it's it is what it is now, you know. We we look we're, we're talking about a season that we nearly won the league. Yeah. We asked also readers to tell us what their favourite off the field entertainers moment was. So there was five op four options for this. One was the open top bus parade after promotion in '93. It wasn't a very good weather day. I remember that that day, but uh, that was an option. 
the development of St. James's Park, which of course took place between 92 and 97, taking the uh, attendance up to 36,000. Keegan's Love It interview, that was what could potentially a, a favourite off the field moment for some fans. And signing Alan Shearer for 15 million, that was the fourth option in this question. 75% went for signing Alan Shearer, which kind of was a quintessential entertainer's moment, a very Keegan, Sir John Hall move. The next most popular um, off the field entertainer's moment was Keegan's Love It interview. So it shows fans probably, you know, enjoyed that and appreciated that, like, like you said, Lee. The development at St James's Park was the third most popular with 9%, and just 5% went for the uh, open top bus parade in 93, which was pretty good. Good good reception back at the, the Civic Centre, but I wondered what your thoughts were on this one. Yeah, I mean, it's it's absolutely crazy when you, you look back at that uh, the open top bus parade. If you look back at the videos, there's people climbing to the top of churches just to get <laughs> risking their lives, just to get a little look at um, the players. <laughs> which is fantastic and the speech from keegan when he just kind of like gets everyone to, to drop silent is just it's it's messiah type behavior you know and uh we'd, we'd love to see something like that again these days um but yeah for me the shearer unveiling was exactly what newcastle united should be about really uh going out there breaking a record bringing a world-class player to the club and everyone you know going along to celebrate i mean i touched on the michael owen deal there um, when i first started the job here and uh, that was a great moment as well at the time um didn't work out like the shiro one but but um for me that epitomizes what newcastle should be about and you know whoever comes in next to this club and you know one day one day we will have a new one i'm convinced about that uh that is the benchmark for the supporters to, to, to get them excited, get them on side. And the club reaps the rewards when you do that. Unfortunately, um, the people at the top at the moment don't have that philosophy. They look at it a completely different way and um, the fan base suffers for it. Mm. And we passed the 25th anniversary of Shearer's signing this month. There's actually a nice piece on Chronicle Live by a nostalgia editor, David Morton, he was actually working on the Chronicles football desk the day it happened and the day Alan Oliver filed his copy from, from the Far East. I do urge everyone to check that, that that article out. Some fascinating insight as to how it was broken, the story. Do you remember where you were, Lee, when you found out the news that Shira was coming? Yeah, I was um I was actually working at a a cinema which isn't there now. It's demolished in in, in Monksin. Yeah. And the newspaper come round and that was you know the first people knew about it then there was no twitter or anything like that uh it was you know on the back page and it was everyone was talking about going, it's, it can't be it was um, it was an unbelievable story so that shows you what a great signing it was but newcastle he pulled it off and um yeah I'm, I'm lucky enough to have in in the past been able to speak to alan shearer speak to freddie shepherd when he was alive um about how that deal you know came across and uh it's it's amazing how they've done it and and pulled it off and also pipped man united to it which at the time it lifted the whole city because you'd had losing the title to man united then you'd had euro 96 of course which was devastating for football fans but then all of a sudden 
Newcastle had the top striker, the golden boot winner of U96 playing for them. And it was just a phenomenal time to, to be a Newcastle United fan. Mm-hmm. Feels like a long time ago, but uh, very, very <laughs> happy memory. Uh, this is an interesting question. We asked readers to rearrange entertainers' eras games in order, starting with their favourites. So we've got a top 10 here of favourite games. I'll go in reverse order. 10th, actually, was the 5-0 in, in 96. So that was the, that was the 10th. Um, number 9 was the uh, one the 2-1 win away at Sunderland at Roker Park in 96. The 8th most popular game was the 6-1 win against Wimbledon at home in 95, where Vinnie Jones famously ended up in goal. The seventh most popular was Newcastle 3, Coventry 0, which I believe was opening day 95-96. The sixth most popular game was Royal Antwerp away, 5-0 in the UEFA Cup. Rob Lee, headers, hat-trick, fantastic. The fifth most popular game was uh, Newcastle 3, Liverpool 0. Andy Cole getting a few in the snow at the Gallagher end. The fourth most popular game was Leicester, 7-1, 7-1, the last day of the Division 1 promotion season where uh, everyone seemed to be decked out in that famous Asics uh, kit and uh, David Kelly and Andy Cole got on the score line, on the score sheet. The third most popular game, the Grimsby um, promotion securing game away. Bit of a pitch invasion at the end and Newcastle were back in the Premier League after winning 2-0. The second most popular game, the 1-0 at St. James's Park, Scott Sellers' free kick in the rain, which was uh, the second most. And the most popular game was Sunderland 1, Newcastle 2, uh, Liam O'Brien over the wall. So that's that's quite interesting. It shows maybe a lot of older fans have been voting in this survey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the derbies were fantastic because uh, up until... I mean, obviously, after 1990, Newcastle lost in the playoffs to Sunderland when Eric Gates and Gabby Dini scored at St James's Park on another rainy night. And uh, that one was it was a bitter pill to swallow for Newcastle fans at that time. And it, and it, you know, the feeling hung around for a while. And then, obviously, Sunderland got the FA Cup final in 1992. So I think a lot of fans, you know, Sunderland were the team at the time that were going places in the early 90s. And then then, it, then Kevin Keane come in and it obviously completely changed. Uh, the, those derby games were, were fantastic. Uh, it's it's hard to pick one out, you know. It's hard to say which was your favourite game. Because everyone, when I was listening to you reel them off, I had like a different memory from, from each game. And um, yeah, for, for me... I think, you know, turning around looking at the scoreboard at half-time against Leicester when they had Newcastle six visitors nil at, at half-time, uh, that, that's pretty... That doesn't happen every week. Um, so that 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 would be up there. Um, the 5-0 against Man United was, you know, it speaks for itself. You don't need me to sort of build that one up. Um, but, yeah, for me, I think, you know... Alan Shearer uh, getting a hat against Leicester. That's not mentioned on there. If you remember that one. Mm, um, yeah. 3-1 down at home at Leicester and Shearer carries Newcastle through to three points, which puts them on the way to the, the Champions League. I know Keegan had gone by then, but it was still very much the entertainer's team. 
that they still finished second as well. They, they they weren't that far behind Man United in that season. I think they went into the last couple of games still in with an outside shot of winning the title, which would have been remarkable. But but yeah, you know, all their memories. Um, I agree with. It's hard for me to single one out, but if you you know if I was absolutely absolutely pushed, then uh, I would probably say six and a little bit Leicester at, at home. Leicester at half time would probably be. Uh, close to the top i'd yeah. probably change my mind on that later but uh, <laughs> it was a great day wasn't it and everyone seemed to be wearing the new kit and it was the the buzz around the city before during and after the game was something that uh it was very special to a lot of fans obviously um, well david was, kelly david kelly yeah. sold on the back of it i know, <laughs> oh, I, know. It seems, I remember it seems... we, we talk about we talk about uh andy cole being sold but you know i know that caused a lot of upset David Kelly going in 1983. Yeah. So, well, actually, lots, lots, of, lots of heartbreak. Yeah. Well, actually, that leads into the, the next question, which was actually a, a suggestion from yourself to add this into the survey, which was which entertainer was sold too soon? Um, there's some obvious candidates here and there's some, some not so obvious candidates. So, the list of players that we had available for the readers to select was Paul Kitson, Mark Hodiger, Darren Huckabee, Rule Fox, Scott Sellers, David Kelly, who you mentioned. Um, and Andy Cole. So Andy Cole obviously won the, was the most popular choice. 67% felt Andy Cole was sold too soon. But David Kelly was next. Um, it, it was just 6% he had, but he was the, the second most popular in this. They felt that David Kelly was sold too soon. Closely followed by Scott Sellers, Rule Fox, Darren Huckabee, and then Hottiger and Kitten were, were much of a muchness. But yeah, Andy Cole overwhelmingly, fans felt he was sold too soon. Then it then it was David Kelly. So it's, it's an interesting question. Yeah, I think Keegan really did risk his relationship with fans uh, with the Andy Cole deal because at the time, you know, the there was a bit of a little bit of a lull from that first season in the Premier League. And things weren't going as well as uh, you know they had been, and there was a, an explanation on those steps needed. From from Keegan, I I always think that they should uh, that if they were going to put a statue of Keegan anywhere, it should be on them steps. Yes, because uh, every time I go up them steps, I think of that moment every single time. And um, yeah, for me, Andy Cole hands down. I I guess Keegan when he sold Kelly, we couldn't see it at the time, but he had a plan, and it was to bring Peter Beardsley in, and nobody can complain with the way that turned. And uh. The other ones, yeah, Kitten's a bit of a strange one because I think he found it very tough at Newcastle, probably because he followed Andy Cole. Uh, he was signed before then, of course, but I think he had a real struggle trying to, to carry that expectation on his shoulders. Um, Huckabee obviously proved everybody wrong. You know, we're, we're having a great career, but who would you have dropped from the entertainers to accommodate him at the time? Uh, hard to say. The problem was, if you go back to that period as well, I think you could only have two or three substitutes and there was no reserve team. So it was harder to give people minutes. And uh, that that is a big factor. But but Andy Cole, for me, hands down, uh, will be the one that, that, that people turn to. But, but even then, after that, he bought in Les Ferdinand. Mm -hmm. with the proceeds and 
no one can really complain about you know the 95 95 96 season so it's um Keegan probably made tough decisions and uh got a lot of them right yeah and that was a, a huge one and like you say the money wasn't reinvested and I think fans if you if you're patient enough you can see that happen a bit like the maybe the Jack Grealish situation with Aston Villa they've they've received a huge transfer fee for Grealish and the owners come out and explained it's going back into into players so that is effectively what Keegan was doing there was no zoom for Keegan to get on he had to get out the back of the stadium and, and talk to fans on the steps so <laughs> love, love the idea of a, a statue on in that exact position as well that's <laughs> that, one day I would love to see that so we've got one more question here Lee that, that fans asked and uh it's from my point of view, I'm a bit of a, a fan of kits, a bit of a collector. And it was what is your favourite kit from the entertainers era? There was a lot. Um, the volume of design seemed to go up quite a lot in the nineties. There was, of course, the options were, of course, the Grand Neck Home shirt, the green and blue third third kit that didn't get much of an outing. I think they played in it at uh, Chef Wed. The uh, yellow and green away kit that um, Liam O'Brien was wearing when he scored against Sunderland at Roger Park. The, the blue away kit, which was famously worn at home against Chef Wed when there was um, um, an issue with Chef Wed's home and away kit. It clashed with Newcastle's home kit. So Newcastle, one of the only times they've ever worn away kit at St. James's Park. The maroon and navy hooped away shirt, of course, from that era with the white shorts and maroon socks. Then the championship, uh, the Division One promotion season, they wore half thick, half thin stripes, which was interesting um, design from Umbro. And then the Essex, the Essex shirt that everyone was wearing that day when we beat Leicester seven one. Of course, the most popular was the, the Grander Neck home shirt, which is a classic kit. Thirty eight percent felt that was the the best of the entertainers era. The next was the Essex, the home shirt that Newcastle first wore when they went up to the Premier League. Then it was the um, actually interestingly it was the Umbro half thin stripes, half thick stripes, which divides a lot of fans. No pun intended. That was the third most popular. Fourth most popular was the away kit the kind of rugby style kit which uh, has again become a classic that the first adidas away kit newcastle had then it was the the blue away asics kit that they wore at home v sheffield wednesday then it was the yellow and green umbro from that promotion season and the the, the, the third kit was the was the, the the least favorite out of all those so any preference on on the entertainers era kits well i'll tell you what i, I doff my cap to anybody who's still got an asics kit in good condition because they were they they were falling to pieces within weeks of purchase uh, back in 1993. Um, I think um, one of my friends absolutely destroyed one. His he had a it was had loads of bobbles on it and stuff like that. It was a blue one, so he like tried to get the old Remington fuzz away out and tried to uh, take them off, and he absolutely destroyed it. So anyone who's still got one of them in good condition, fair play to you. Um, yeah, it's got to be the grander colour for me because that's probably the, the best memories. Um, it was just such a unique kit at the time. We hadn't seen anything like it. We haven't really seen anything like it since. And it was paired with a wonderful away strip as well, the maroon and blue. Um, so for me, that was they're yeah, probably the best kits Newcastle have ever produced, uh, you know, Umbro, I did like the Umbro kits as well. Um, they, they were good. And, but Asics, yeah, they, 
look, the, the probably the best Asix one that I, I liked was the when they used to have McEwen's lager on the front. I thought that yeah. was quite quite a nice touch yeah. instead of the blue star. Just just nice to have a different uh, sponsor on there. But um, yeah, the probably the granddad colour and extra marks if anyone out there's got the centre parks edition. <laughs> yeah, the type war, war against Monaco. Yeah, <laughs> because you can't yeah, advertise famous. beer. Yeah. In, in France. <laughs> yeah, very, very rare, very rare. And and also, I just remember that the entertainers era, this period, if you were walking around the city centre, even the suburbs of Newcastle, you would see so many Newcastle shirts, uh, you know, day, night, it was deemed, you know, going out attire, you would see it in, down the quayside of an evening, people just wore the shirts a lot more. I'd love to know what volume of sales they did back in the day. There was queues outside the club shop when the new kits were released. We don't really see that anymore, but... I think that's probably reflective of what was being seen on the pitch. Everyone wanted to to have a piece of that entertainer's side and, and wear it with, with pride. So, yeah, that was a memory of mine in the 90s, seeing the kits all over the city. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were extremely difficult to get hold of. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I think when Newcastle sort of romped to the top of the, the old first division, you, in that early part of that season, you couldn't actually buy a kit because the club's commercial um, staff, it had dipped so badly in the early 90s that they'd stopped producing the kits. But then suddenly the club was on the up again and I think it was Freddie Fletcher come in and he made sure that you could, you know, buy the strip and that have the blue star and all that. But, the, I mean, that strip, really, you could write a book about that strip because at one point it had the greenels on, the same design. Yeah. And you had to buy the patch yourself yeah. to cover the greenels up, yeah. and then iron on the uh, blue star, which is just <laughs> absolutely bizarre when you think about that now. But, but yeah, fun times with all those strips. But yeah, for me, there's there's only one winner really. Yeah, the grand neck, the grand neck colour. Yeah. Well, Lee, that's been very enjoyable uh, chatting through this this era with you. I'm, I'm going to need you to get back to the the hard news of. Newcastle United 2021-22 Harsh reality Yes, back to reality but yeah it was nice to to reflect on that, thanks everyone for for listening and watching, please subscribe to the Everything is Black and White podcast by whichever podcast platforms you use, follow us on social media at ChronicleNUFC on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram, we'll have regular host Andrew Musgrove back with us next week to be resuming the the match day coverage Gibbles Cornyn and the other fantastic uh, special edition podcasts Andrew does and obviously the live Q&A's with Lee around everything black and white before and after the games. And if you, if you are into your Newcastle history and, and you, or if you're not and you're keen to learn a bit more, then um, I'm hosting a, a podcast called Chronicled that comes out every Wednesday. Myself and the club's official historian, Paul Joanne, we're chronologically walking through the history of the club via 30-minute episodes from 1881 to 2021. We've reached 1927 this week. We're about a third of the way through, so do check those out too. So, yeah, thanks very much for listening and watching this special entertainer's era episode hope it was entertaining and uh, we'll catch you later in the season bye bye